Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. Hi! So, this month, we are reading the book East of Eden by John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful, and also I hate you, uh, which I say both to Michael and to John Steinbeck. (laughs) Um, yeah. I think we both deserve that. <laughs> At least one of you does. Um, probably both of you. Okay, so uh, we should probably introduce the rules before we get any farther. Yes. Um, those of you who listened last month will know some of the rules already, but we've actually added more rules because, like the UN, we felt that there weren't enough rules in the world. So, here we go. Bureaucracy. <laughs> um... So, the the rules that we started with, or the the concept for the show, in a moment I'm going to introduce the scotch. Um, (laughs) Michael being my guest this month, as I was his last month, Michael has no idea what the scotch is. No idea. And uh, I get to to introduce it to him. After we introduce the scotch, we'll talk about it just a little bit, just to let all of you listening at home see what we're drinking. And then we will pour the scotch, and after we pour the scotch, rule number one... We cannot talk about the scotch. After you hear this sound, we can't talk about the scotch. Except it'll be a slightly different sound because the glasses will be full of scotch, which they were not at that time. Right, this is an empty, these are empty glasses. Yeah. Are you done? Probably. Okay. We'll see. I feel like, listeners, you're going to hear that sound one day, but it's actually going to be me and Michael sword fighting (laughs) when one of us has annoyed the other for whatever reason. A day um, will come. Like, making them like John Steinbeck. Anyway, we'll we'll get into that. Okay, so that's that's the basic rule. Once you, once the, the scotch is poured in the glasses, the full glasses clink, we cannot talk about the scotch. If we talk about the scotch, we lose. Um, now, last month, I fully admit that I sort of kicked the spirit of those rules in the face by essentially mentioning... I'm pretty sure we curb-stomped the rules. Yeah, between the two of us, for <laughs> sure. And so, again, like, we, this is this is how the law works, right? You, you violate it, and then it has to get stricter. So this month, we are not allowed to mention any of the words, like, associated with the title of the scotch in any way. So if we were to drink the scotch superstition again this month, like we did last month, if we said the word superstitious or anything like that, we would lose. Exactly. So... That's the main rule. The rule that we've added this month is that also if we say the phrase your Your mom mom. in any form, your mom, your mother, whatever, um, we also lose. And this was just because we felt, A, that we sort of uh, cast... Well, I was going to say cast shade on two very fine ladies last month. Upstanding women. Extremely wonderful women. We um, respect. Who we respect, and at least one of whom listened to this podcast with me and was glaring at me for a while. <laughs> um, I'm sorry I was the cause of that. You should be. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so we've we've decided to ban ourselves from that. If we, if we say your mom or your mother in any form, even a legitimate one, I want it to be clear. Like, you know, maybe, maybe we would say it somehow in a, in conversation that like, made sense or but we still lose and so michael what happens if we lose 
If we lose, the loser has to perform a verbal stunt as prescribed by the non-loser. Right. We don't want to say the winner because as there we are know, no winners. There is no winning. No. Not not here. All right. Are we ready for the scotch? I've been ready since I got here. I know. So have I, for that matter. Also, I lost the scotch, so... Come on! You had one job. (laughs) I had two jobs, and I failed them both. Two jobs. All right. So, as you can see, all of you listening at home, uh, this month's scotch is Edward and Mackie's uh, Craigalaki, I believe. Based on my research, that's how you say the scotch, and by research, I mean two minutes on Google. But Craigalaki is a Speyside single malt Scot whisk- Scotch whiskey. Uh, it's a beautiful the the uh, cardboard case that it comes in is just beautiful. It has this old fashioned like woodcut looking print, mm-hmm. um, and the building in the in the woodcut. Part of what drew me to this Scotch for this month. It looks like you know an old uh, foundry or something yeah. you might see in you know nineteenth century California where East of Eden is set. Ooh, I'm, clever. I'm sure it's actually, like, a picture of the distillery. Right, probably you know, but, in Scotland. Right, but, like, at least the period is you know, right. we're geographically uh, challenged on this podcast. I believe I referred to Scotland as Ireland in the first episode. You did. So. And I am uh, still deeply ashamed about that on your behalf. I know. So, anyway, yeah, we we don't know where anything is or what anywhere is or any of that nonsense. But anyway, Craigalaki is a Speyside single malt scotch whiskey. It says our distillery built on a rocky bluff situated above the confluence of the river Fittich and the river Spey. Mm-hmm. Craigalaki lies in the heart of Speyside. Ooh. So Speyside of course is one of the uh, sort of sort of uh, three major Produce the single malt scotch producing regions, so mm-hmm. they're making quite a claim here, and yeah. we'll see if they live up to it. Now, this you, is you, 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 you've you've got this confluence of rivers here, which uh, you know calls to mind Eden. Uh-huh. Confluence of rivers as it well. It does. So uh, and you, I, you were cleverer than you thought. I may I knew that. I was just wondering <laughs> if you'd pick up on ah, it. Yes, <laughs> 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 if Michael believes me, I will eat my own toe. <laughs> so I'm opening the the container now, and the Ooh. the bottle is as beautiful as the the container yes, implied. Um, this is a 13 year old whiskey, aged aged 13 years in uh, whatever barrels they they say. And uh, just a bit from the back, as we did last month, uh, in 1891, a whiskey expert noted that Craigalaki represented a style of whiskey seldom met with now, mm-hmm. which we took as a as a compliment. This is today we still use old-fashioned worm tubs to cool our spirit and bestow it with extra flavor, creating a dram to rival whiskeys twice its age. Now, the phrase worm tubs might seem a little bit disturbing, um, <laughs> but there's a picture, again, sort of a woodcut-style picture of a worm tub uh, below that description, and it appears to be some sort of... Uh, uh, like a still, it says it's copper, so like a copper pot mm-hmm. still. And there's like some tubing that sort of, you know, snakes Snaking back out. and forth Is like a worm. Probably where the worm comes yeah. from. Yeah, so I'm hoping there are no worms in this. Right. If it's as good as, you know, a single malt whiskey can be, uh, I probably I care. won't care. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's a beautiful sort of pale, pale golden color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I can figure out how to get this... Uh, uh, top off. 
of this whiskey. You uh, just want to make me wait. I do. I do. I want to see if the Pavlov thing will kick in yeah. and I'll just start mm-hmm. drooling. Mm-hmm. All right. Is everyone ready? Ooh. Ooh. Ready for the for the popping? Yeah. Ooh. Let's hear that. And now here's the here's the pour. That wasn't the glasses clinking nope. Nope. yet. That was one glass hitting the bottle. So the rules haven't kicked in yet. So your mom is not safe. Um, <laughs> there we go. Ooh, and it has a wonderful scent already. Okay, mm. now now here we go to the part where we can't say things like that. That's right. All right, ready? That was a disappointing clank. Let's try that again. Okay. Here, move move your fingers down so there's. There All right, ready? And there we go. Beautiful. So, uh. East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Now, Ethan, I think um, you owe a lot of people an apology. I I do. I <laughs> I genuinely do. Um, uh, I also hate them, but I do owe them an apology. Uh, it's sort of a complicated thing, but so I was wondering when we were going to get here, and I guess right away well, we is as good a time as any take it right off the bat here. I, I recommended this book, or I chose this book for us for this month because it has been recommended to you before and you needed to read it. It's true. And I was fully intending to read it, you know, at some point, but... Right. Um, I just as hastened the process. You, you did. <laughs> like a uh, like a good diuretic of some kind. Um, Thank you? Literary diuretic. Uh, I will accept that. Please, please tell me that goes on your gravestone someday. Literary Michael Lilienthal, literary diuretic. Yep. Anyway, we've beaten that horse to death. So, uh, I had to read um, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck when I was in high school. As did many. Yeah, as did many. And, you know, I was, I was homeschooled, which means we, we got somewhat of a, of a say in our own curriculum, but... Uh, my mother sort of made me read several of those books that, like, everyone reads in high school, which did not include Catcher in the Rye, for which I am eternally grateful, even though I fl- inflicted that on myself later. But it did include Grapes of Wrath, even though within, like, the first 50 pages, I was already complaining bitterly, bitterly about this book. Um, my main uh, complaint was sort of, you know, especially High School Ethan was very into, like, subtlety and reference and and um symbol and and theme and all of those great like esoteric things that that about 17 people currently alive in the world really really love in literature (laughs) and you know steinbeck just took that that kind of thing especially his symbols and just hit you over the head with them like there's nothing to be clever and like read into and get they were just there like a frying pan to the face and i just hated this. And I've given this rant several times over mm-hmm. the years to to many different people, including Michael, um, many years ago now, like more years ago than I want to admit, being old enough to um yeah. it have for it to have been. Uh someone can parse the grammar of that sentence and send me a, a diagram, I will be grateful. But anyway yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I would give this rant to people. I gave it to Michael, uh, my my friend uh, Clint, who um, I went to grad school with, who was a very, like, a, a Steinbeck um, apologist, almost. Uh, you know, I gave it to him. I know I gave it to, to several other people over the years. And 
out of all of those people, all of the ones who really liked sort of American literature, or liked Steinbeck in particular, um, they all, a lot of them sort of, you know, said like, okay, yeah, you, you have something of a point there, but read East of Eden. Like, that was what I kept hearing, like, read East of Eden. And I heard this enough times from enough people that I respected that, you know, rather than writing off Steinbeck forever for, you know, everything by him for all time, um, East of Eden did go back onto my, like, okay, I have to read this list. You know, and, and if, even if I intend to, like, read something as soon as possible, as soon as it makes it onto my reading list, it's like a four-year-plus <laughs> gap time. So who knows when it would actually have happened, but it would actually have happened sooner or later, um, poss- probably later. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the, the whole literary diuretic thing happened, and Michael um, accelerated the process of me reading this book. And so, I... Are you looking up the I, text? Yes, I, 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 I want to share this for our listeners. Okay, I want to say that I was but... wondering what you were doing with your phone while I was talking. <laughs> yeah, I really just don't care about it. I was going to say, like, we usually don't look at, <laughs> look at our phones when, when we're talking to each other. Like, unlike, I feel like most people our own age, or at least a lot of people our own age, I guess I shouldn't crap on my entire generation. That's what think pieces on the internet are for. Anyway. Exactly. Um, so so I, I, he was looking at his phone. I was yep. like, that's okay. I'm just on a riff here. And then I was getting to, like, okay uh i guess i should just talk about the text that michael sent me and then i was like wait is that what he's doing on his phone so yep go ahead, uh, michael. so here it is december 29th of 2016 last year uh <laughs> at 11 17 p.m woke me up no uh <laughs> In all caps, Ethan sent me, which in all caps made me uh, think that either he's very angry or an old person. (laughs) Both of which are actually correct constantly. (laughs) So, in all caps, Ethan says to me, All right, I like East of Eden, are you happy? And I respond with a grinning emoji. Without punctuation. (laughs) No punctuation. uh, In addition to being angry and an old person, I am also 12. (laughs) And then uh, the following... Evening at uh, 9.15 p.m. on December uh, 30th, he says, I love this book. I love it as fiercely as anything by Twain, as Tristram Shandy, as fiercely as I still hate Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) So. Yes. uh, Now, this, I think you sent this to me when you finished reading the book. Is that correct? That is correct. So you had absorbed the whole thing and were in the contemplation phase. Right. Granted, that was like, about 10 minutes after I'd finished the book. So the contemplation phase was pretty fresh. And I will say that I had had probably like two cocktails at that point. Um, And like, even though I make my cocktails strong, that's not that much for me, but it is enough to sort of affect the expression of emotion. But I do still stand by those, those texts. Like this is, you know, this has become a seminal book that if I don't reread it multiple times over the course of my life, I will at least intend to reread it multiple times. And, you know, the other, the other books that Michael mentioned, uh, you know, Mark Twain is who I will name as my favorite author. Um, I did my master's uh, thesis on Twain. So, you know, that's a pretty high compliment. Um, Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, if I have to pick a favorite novel, even though Twain's the favorite author, Tristram Shandy is the favorite novel. So this is like pretty high in my personal literary pantheon. 
Um, and I'm very conflicted about how to feel about that because <laughs> because it's Steinbeck. I do still hate Grapes of Wrath. I hated the Pearl. I didn't really like Of Mice and Men. And I think that's all I've read by Steinbeck. I will admit, sure. but like, yeah. So it's like you know all of this, all of this just like hated it, and then this one that's like up there with with almost anything that I would take to like permanent exile away from books or whatever so so what specifically made you love it so much despite it being steinbeck okay part of i guess what i almost wished grapes of wrath would be and what this book does is steinbeck in a much more descriptive mode Mm -hmm. um like you know the things i hate about grapes of wrath and and especially the pearl um and to the extent that i didn't really like mice of men mice and men uh, is that he's in this like parable mode and it's just this really sort of stretched thin where like the natural um tendencies of the story sort of get like bent unnaturally towards whatever parable you know steinbeck is is trying to to promote or or a political or philosophical sort of point that he's trying to promote and you know unlike for example robert heinlein who will just take entire 50 page blocks and have a character preach what he wants to say which is almost better in my mind even though it's not very elegant like at least he's just coming out and saying it where steinbeck tries to make this fictional world just embody (laughs) whatever parable it is and it always does disservice to like actual fiction um you know as opposed to like a, a sort of sermon parable of some kind and in east of eden he he you know there's not that there isn't philosophy and there isn't stuff that like he's clearly trying to say but all of it to my mind gets sort of subsumed to the creation of the story and of the characters which like you know i i even thought this about grapes of wrath like if he would have approached grapes of wrath that way um, it would have been a much better book, and I probably would have really loved it. So, in a sense, this is like the book I always wished that Steinbeck would have written. Um, and he did. And he did. <laughs> so there's that. Plus, part of it is like the fact that it's so big, you mm-hmm. know, and that, that may, the two may be interrelated. Like, when you're writing a story this big, you just have to let it sort of flow, mm-hmm. I think. It's on a very grand scale. Yeah, and I love sc- stories on a grand scale, and I tend to think that either stories like that call out either the very best or the very worst in a novelist Mm -hmm. like there are probably several novelists whose worst book is them attempting things on a on a grand scale like even i know a lot of critics hate uh nabokov's book ada because it's so long and they they think it's sort of flimsy and lost its way but you know there are other authors and i think steinbeck is one of them where that grand scale just um, and I haven't read Ada, so I don't know personally, but, but with Steinbeck, that grand scale just like calls up everything that's best in him. I and think. that's, that's um, the, my theory about why you like East of Eden and not Grapes of Wrath. I think it is exactly everything you hate about Steinbeck, but stretched uh, to a, a greater extent. Because, you know, that, that frying pan analogy of his, uh, his symbols and everything. You know, this is this is very clearly allegorizing much of the book of Genesis and other parts of scripture uh, that, uh, you know, you've got the, the prodigal son mixed in there and you've got um, uh, creation and the fall and all that, all those different uh, portions of the Bible that are very clearly laid out here and allegorized, but he puts it into such a grand scale and makes it something universal. 
Uh, yeah. That the these these frying pan things, like you, you've got uh, Aaron and and uh, Caleb, the the two brothers who are kind of the focus of especially the last half of the book. Uh, very clearly, Cain and Abel. Right. Very obviously, but he's not trying to hide it. He even explicitly says it <laughs> a couple right. of times. And I think that's part of. Sorry, did you have a? <clears throat> no, no, that's that's. I think I think the way that he uses that though is part of what I like about it, as opposed to like. Grapes of Wrath, because it, to to my mind at least, all of that stuff sort of grows naturally out of the story, as opposed to being sort of imposed on the story by the author. Mm-hmm. You know, in uh, in in East of Eden, like the the Cain and Abel story comes very naturally to the characters. It comes out of who they are, and sort of the focus on that, and even the the you know explicitly sort of calling the brothers Cain and Abel that comes from the characters mm-hmm. in the book. You know, and it grows again. It grows naturally. Whereas I felt like in Grapes of Wrath, um, Steinbeck took sort of a story that could exist on its own, and took all of the stuff that would have grown naturally out of the story, and sort of from the top down bent it to his own allegorical ends. That's where I think the difference is. I don't know if that makes any sense to follow, you follow. or the gentle listener, but we'll that's let them where make that... their own judgments on that. <laughs> <laughs> and may they be as harsh as we deserve. Exactly. Thank you. Who are you thanking there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Just making sure. Just thanking... Yes. Okay. Thanking Steinbeck. Thank you, Steinbeck, for writing this book. You magnificent bastard. Jerk. Um, <clears throat> who we love. We very much love. Uh, so, we've, we've talked a lot about my impressions of this book, but when did you first read this book? And I was what... actually trying to figure that out. I can't remember when I first read this. Okay. How many um, times have you read it now? This is my this... second time reading okay. it. Okay. Uh, and I think the first time I read it, based on my handwriting in <laughs> this book, uh, is somewhere between the end of high school and beginning of college. Okay. Um, it might have been, I know, I, I got into a kick of reading really big classics <laughs> my senior year of high school. That's when I read um, uh, Les Miserables, uh, and then uh, coming from that, I read War and Peace, um, and I think East of Eden was a part of that big hunk of stuff uh, in there. But, again, based on my notes in the margins, <laughs> they're relatively more sophisticated than the notes that I put in books in high school, so I feel like I had at least one college course in English <laughs> uh, before reading this. But, yeah, I couldn't actually figure out, and there, there are a couple marginal notes, like, I've got a little shorthand thing there. Do you know what that says? Do you know what that is? Uh, what that means, that little note? It looks like either the symbol for pi, like the mathematical symbol for pi, or like some sort of Chinese character? Yeah, and, you know, you, that those guesses are as good as mine. Oh, I okay. have no <laughs> idea what that means. That's so what you get for making up your own shorthand. I know. I, I made up a shorthand and I used it. And I know some of it I still use, okay. but um, I have no idea what that is. I bet I've got a notebook tucked away somewhere that gives me the key to it. Well, you're not supposed to do that, though. I know, because that, that, that and... answers it, that, right. or that gives the key to somebody else. Right, when the enemy gets a hold of your papers, they will have the key to decoding Everything. the code that you created to frustrate them. Like, exactly. that's terrible spycraft. I'm very disappointed with you. I know. Well, I don't know if the notebook actually exists. Well, even the fact that you think it might exist disappoints me. Okay, that's so, fair. Yeah. I'll accept that. Uh, but, okay, so I... Setting that down, 
Uh, I don't know what my initial impressions of the book were. Okay. In fact, when I started reading it this time around, I was meeting the characters anew. Okay. Uh, I, I, I started to kind of remember a few of them, but I, Kathy Ames was the one that okay. I remembered. The only one. Just Kathy Ames. She was the only one that I knew clearly was in this book. And there were a couple of, uh, images that I remember. Like, I remember, uh, um... Uh, Samuel Hamilton and, and Lee and Adam Trask all sitting and talking about Cain and Abel and talking about Tim Schull and, and such. I, re- I remember that image okay. in my head and a couple other images. But uh, otherwise, my impressions were lost to the ether. I remember it <laughs> feeling like reading the Bible in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, that uh, Well, it's it's just so big. It's so epic. It spans generations, and um, I remember that being a big feature of it, uh, which which sure. aided uh, the fact that I couldn't remember a lot of the specific characters. I just could remember impressions, sure, um, because it just spanned these generations. Sure. Uh, well, two mainly generations. You two, could argue but with, three. You uh, could argue for three or four, probably, or four, sort yeah. of additions on either end, really. Yeah. But yeah, so my initial impressions were just that it was a great book, and it spoke to me, and... It moved me along, probably in being able to read more literature. Mm. Uh, I feel like it equipped me to read more analytically later on. But now, this time around, I, I looked back at my notes and I added to them. And uh, in the in the back page of my book, I, I made a list of a bunch of themes okay. that I noticed. And the earlier ones were all all there. Um, uh, lying is is a theme and falsehood uh which is connected with storytelling mm-hmm. and then you've got uh brotherhood and a paradox connected with brotherhood uh that love and hate are there uh and protection and murder you've got that repeated uh the brothers feel protective of their brother but also want to kill them right uh <laughs> uh and you've got the the paradox of of faith and love uh as well hmm. and having faith but not having love or having love but not having faith Sure. Um, you know, believing something about somebody, but not actually loving them. Yeah, you know, these, these different parado- paradoxes. Sure, or that, um, that sort of reverse paradox where because you love them, you don't believe something that mm-hmm. that intellectually you may think is true. And that was something brought up in the uh, the first set of brothers, sure. Charles and Adam, which yeah, is another yeah, yeah. Cain and Abel, where they explicitly noticed that, I think. Uh, was it Adam who was the, the one who, who pointed it out uh, and said... Um, I don't love our father, uh, but I have faith in him. And right. meanwhile, Charles is very intensely uh, all about loving their father, but he doesn't believe certain things about them. Right. About and when when it comes up that the father, uh, you know, appeared to have acquired his wealth essentially through what we'd call these days, I guess, like white collar theft. Yeah. Probably. Mm-hmm. You know, the even even though he loves him, he 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 doesn't believe that he didn't do it. Right. Whereas, whereas Adam, you know, doesn't really love him, but he he sort of has this this faith that he didn't do this yep. this theft, and um, you know, you can take that a lot of ways. Maybe Adam's just sort of protecting his own interest. That you know, if 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 he doesn't believe that this was is you know stolen money, he can live comfortably on it without mm-hmm. violating his conscience or whatever. But yeah, there's there's. And uh, what's interesting is that very perspective of Adams gets completely reversed by the end. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. At the end, he confesses to Lee, I think my father stole. Uh, right. And um, his his faith has, has been shattered. Uh, and there's there's that uh, the, that motif of, of um, the gods falling 
Um, right. And fathers are depicted as gods in a lot of ways. Right. Um, that or the gods of the sons. And so, yeah, that their father, uh, what was his name? I Started forget. with a C, which was important because his <laughs> wife was Alice, starting with an A. Oh, right. Uh, um, Cyrus. Cyrus, yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, Cyrus, um, you know, fell in Adam's eyes by the end. But by the end, it didn't have that great of an impact. It was it was kind of just tacked on. That was, af- was that, that was before Aaron had died, but Aaron had gone off to war. Right, uh, yes. Spoilers! Oh, did, did we didn't do the spoiler warning. We didn't give a spoiler warning. But we but did it last time. We, did and it we last said time, it was the so one and only time. We did. So, but we will we will do another tradition we inaugurated last time. Um, if you haven't read this book, we're basically going to talk about it as if you had. And like, look at this thing. It's six hundred freaking pages long. Six hundred and one. Yeah, like we're not going to be able to you know give you enough context to you know give you everything you need to understand what we're saying if you haven't read the book and even though we just scared you by telling you it was that many pages this is a really as far as 600 page books go it it flows smoothly there's you know not like a quick 600 page book right it's not like kind of like a a, an easy 10 mile run yeah exactly (laughs) exactly like that like i just took this morning um (laughs) and this afternoon when i was bored uh and if you believe that, I have some oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona. Anyway. Oceanfront property in Arizona. So, we'll From my front porch you can see the sea. So okay, we'll edit on. that out. That's going to be gone and no one will hear it. And I will pretend to forget that I heard it. <laughs> um, but anyway, you so. You know you liked it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I almost broke one of the rules. Uh, anyway, <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing. I don't. I don't know what my mouth is saying. Okay, <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> so that's that's. Oh, I almost broke the other of the rules. So we're <laughs> we're uh, banging on all cylinders now. Anyway, so if you <laughs> haven't read the book, um, we're gonna pause yes. and let you because this podcast podcast does have a pause button and a rewind button and. You know, so pause the tape here, go read the book, and come back. Yeah. Are you ready? Wasn't it right? Like, and I am going to say it was the best this month, because, like, again, one of my favorites now, even though I still hate Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) That's okay. I I count this as a win. You Uh, you should, and I hate you. I know. But... But you also love me. Yeah. Aww. If I had emotions, which I don't, so... Yeah. Except for hate. I only have hate. Only hate. Only hate. Only hate. Except you don't, because that's another theme of the book. <laughs> human beings are complex. <laughs> Wait. And in a balance. Are they? Yes. And there's no such thing as pure to one side or the other, except maybe Kathy Ames. But uh, even at the end, uh, here's... Okay, so Kathy Ames... One of my favorite villains, and a vampire, freaking vampire, did you hear how often it referred to her small, sharp canines? Oh, yeah. I mean... doesn't she, at some point, like, see herself in a mirror and freak out? Yes. Or am I thinking of Wuthering Heights, which I'm reading now? No, I'm pretty sure there is a scene. Okay, I I thought there was. But, yes. So, vampire, clearly... So she... explain explain like okay. what a vampire in literature uh, is. A vampire in literature. It, all all like two of our listeners who haven't known us for yes. the last eleven years won't necessarily know what you're talking about. So think about a vampire. Everyone okay. we know has now stopped listening. Yes, er, and they've skipped ahead. You know, yeah. skip ahead about ten minutes or so. Right. Uh, vampire. 
in literature, this this is a, a thing to understand. Think about a vampire. A vampire sucks blood, okay? Uh, that's one thing. Uh, if you read Dracula, however, part of the, the key of that vampire is also giving his blood, shedding his blood, and making his victims drink his own blood. Um, he, he does that um, at least at one occasion explicitly. Uh, but um, this keys in with a, a concept of, of Hades and stealing um, Persephone, mm-hmm. that he feeds her pomegranate seeds. But those pomegranate seeds that he gives, he's giving these as a gift, it traps her. Right. In the underworld. She is forced to stay because she has eaten these pomegranate seeds. It's a similar image with the vampire giving his blood in order to take. And that's the that's essentially what you can boil it down to if you want to make it as simplistic as possible. A vampire gives only in order to take. And there's something that's brought out there too. Uh, Joe... Uh, Joe Valerie, is that his name? Uh, the the hand. It sounds right. Yeah. The the the, the right hand man of Kathy at the end. His father said something to him to the extent uh, to the effect that um, uh, a girl carrying tea somewhere, she's always after something. She wants something, and that's essentially it. Giving means taking to a vampire, and what the vampire really wants to take is anything that is not itself, and to make it into itself. Right. Uh, so that's a vampire. Uh, is solipsism is a good word to ascribe to a vampire. That yeah. A vampire is its own existence, and nothing else can exist except the vampire. Right, and that's why, you know, traditionally vampires uh, tend to freak out when they see a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, that's that impact almost that can be like your weather vane for spotting vampiric characters in fiction. Like if if some character sees themselves in a mirror and and freaks out for some reason. You know, you should say, wait, maybe this is this is a, a vampire, and watch for other signs. Um, mm-hmm. Also, in real life, if if anyone that you know like uh, can't see themselves in a mirror or or really freaks out when they when they see themselves, you know, reflected, well, maybe carry some um, garlic around. Yeah, you know, a, a crucifix <laughs> and, a, and a stake, and yeah. you know, maybe alert your local like Van Helsing or whatever. Yep. And I'm talking about one eight hundred Van Helsing. Yeah, and that'll get you Hugh Jackman <laughs> or whoever plays it. Is it isn't it Hugh, Jackman Hugh Jackman in the I'm movie? Sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it will get you Hugh Jackman, which is weird. That's but our guarantee. Yeah, and you know, all the money that you spent to get us to give you that guarantee, you can have all of that back if he doesn't answer that number. Yep. Anyway, but yeah, and and part of that is is because you know that's it's this idea that the vampire literally can't picture a world outside of themselves. Yep. It's just you know in uh, the movie uh, The Shining the the um, I forget the director's name it's Kubrick Kubrick Kubrick's Kubrick movie The Shining uh, the 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 father in that movie at one point he's walking you know and, and this is the father who like literally just turns on everybody and tries to tries to murder them and at one point he's sort of walking down a hallway and there are mirrors on either side and and you know it's sort of a famous scene of him twitching and freaking out. And it, it, if you look carefully, it's every time he walks past a mirror, he freaks out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's... Um, I need to watch this movie even more now. I haven't actually seen it. Oh, well, maybe we'll have to do a like a live watch of The Shining. Ooh, riff track style. Yeah, except with us saying, you know, things about themes and not making people laugh. Because, right, because we're not funny. No, we and we hate people, so... Yes. Um, and laughter. And laughter. And humor of all kinds. Um, and people of all kinds. People. We're just filled with hate. Yep. 
Anyway. Because we are all that exists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and no, which... um, I was making a point about Kathy Ames. Yes. Uh, before you got me on this tangent about vampires. You literally said Kathy Ames vampire. Like, you said those words in that order. No, I didn't. This is entirely your fault. I blame you. I know you do, but it so is it, your fault. It doesn't matter. It's your fault. Um, <laughs> so, Kathy Ames kills herself at the end. And uh, she relates herself to Alice in Wonderland. To Alice of Wonderland fame. And when she's killing herself, she she takes a pill and, and drinks a potion and uh, and that's how she how she does the deed. Uh, and it's just I'm trying to find the exact page because it's um it's a wonderful, wonderful image for how she um, pictures her own demise and it's it's just it's sad in in a way. Oh, I'm getting close here. Okay. Um, so uh, she she describes how she imagined this, that Alice was her friend. And she uh, she describes as a child that uh, she had this potion or this, this potion, the drink me potion was something uh, attractive to her. And, and it's described here. She had only to drink the whole bottle and she would dwindle and disappear and cease to exist. This, this idea of the drink me potion shrinking her down. She would cease to exist. And better than all, when she stopped being, she never would have been. Uh, and the point in all of that is that she is author and audience of her own story. Right. No one else sees her, and, and that's how it's described. When when she when she kills herself, uh, she takes the the eat me and she puts the cap capsule in her mouth, drink me, she said, and swallowed the bitter cold tea. Uh, and then she starts to feel herself fading away. And then her eyes closed and a dizzy nausea shook her. I'm on page 551 of the, the Steinbeck Centennial Edition. Uh, she opened her eyes and stared about in terror. The gray room darkened and the cone of light flowed and rippled like water. Water's another theme. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and then her eyes closed again and her fingers curled as though they held small breasts. And her heart beat solemnly and her breathing slowed as she grew smaller and smaller and then disappeared. And she had never been. So she she ends her existence. She completely destroys herself. And that's in her eyes. And there's this theme of the story. Uh, they, they have this, um, uh, the, the, the tales of Sappho or uh, whatever. Uh, the, no, I'm thinking of something else. <laughs> uh, but they've got uh, this, this old Greek myth where the king asks uh, this certain philosopher... Uh, do you think I'm lucky? Right, uh, right. And he says, well, I can't tell yet because you're not dead. Uh, right. And be because the theme is the story is not done for right. that king. You can't tell until the story is done. And that's uh, nobody knows of themselves whether they are good or evil. That's right. decided after they're dead by someone else. Kathy Ames can't accept that. Right. She defines her own story. And so she wants herself to cease to exist. And... In a way, she kind of does. Mm -hmm. Even though the story is written for herself by others, and, you know, in literally it's written in East of Eden, and mm -hmm. we have this picture of her as this evil, wicked vampire. Right. Uh, she is only evil. Uh, she's described as a monster early on, and, and lacking any good. Right. Um, but even still, uh, uh, Cal, or Caleb is, is thinking about visiting her grave, but he's like, I don't know where her grave is. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where her grave right. is. She's she is erased. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. Um, you know, one of the the major themes I picked up on in this, which almost you could call it sort of a, a 
mirror image or the the you know sort of tail side of of the head's coin that you're describing is um this idea of like I call it world building mm-hmm. um which is what I wrote my undergraduate thesis on in in English and uh I it was it was an idea that I swear I had gotten from somewhere else but when I went to research it I couldn't find it anywhere else um at least not not in the exact way that I was using it. So world building is a term that that comes out of like science fiction and fantasy and it's usually used to refer to this idea of, you know, like J.R.R. Tolkien is the classic example, right? He he literally just built this entire world with with a history and languages and and, you know, cultures and and everything um Stupid, just from scratch, genius. right? Or, you know, Frank Herbert in Dune does mm-hmm. the same thing in more of a science fiction using the science fiction toolbox this is the idea of world building well it occurred to me that it's really sort of a philosophical concept um and that like this is what sort of humans do all the time you know anytime you're telling a story or even you can even take it down to the level of like telling a joke right like um people behave in ridiculous ways in jokes in order to get to the punchline like there's the old joke about you know Oli and Oli and neighbor Sven were out in the in the field digging a well and and um get the accent on come on okay so Oli and Oli and neighbor Sven were out in the field and they were digging a well this is in central Minnesota there and oh yeah oh yeah so so oh, they're sure. they're digging a well and they got the big well digger there and they stop work and sort of lean over to see how deep the hole's gone and it's pretty deep they can't see the bottom hello and, hello, hello yeah hello. so Oli uh Oli loses a dollar from from his from his wallet from oh. his billfold um, and it falls down a hole and Oli looks down for a second and pulls out a billfold and pulls out a twenty dollar bill and tosses that down after it and neighbor Sven says Oli what'd you do that for and Oli says well darned if I was going down there after just a dollar oh <laughs> um, so you know and and the idea of that that joke like you've got all of these pr- sort of almost prefab concepts right what's the field what's a what's a well digger what's a hole um and then you know there's there's this genre of Oli and Lena jokes where um for those unfamiliar like like Oli is this almost almost uh, mythical figure he's like a Minnesota um, Norwegian farmer of a type that almost you know is he in American Gods because if he's not he should be. he should be that's true anyway so so you have this this character of Oli who who comes with all these preconceptions and you're sort of constructing all of these things together just to make this joke you know let alone when you tell a story about your own life you're building a world in which the story happened and and so on and so forth and it occurred to me that every character in this book sooner or later participates in in sort of a world building exercise mm-hmm. um you know samuel hamilton who you know arguably the main character certainly sort of the guiding spirit mm-hmm. of this book um you know he he explicitly says like i tell stories you know and he's he's irish i tell stories preach and, you know the stories like he explicitly says not all of the stories are true or not mm-hmm. all of them happened the way that he told them but now they're the stories and they yep. they need to exist in a certain way for the integrity of the story yes um you know john steinbeck in one of the just most i hate him moves in all of literature but i also <laughs> love him writes himself into the story it's awesome right and and he's just he he describes himself as a jackass like 
the only like <laughs> yes. two or three times that he's sort of on screen or on stage, whatever whatever uh, uh, wrong metaphor you want to use. Um, you know, <laughs> one time he's like hiding behind his mother's skirts because he's just looking. The only other time he's there, he's like making fun of a, of a German guy. Yep. Like he's a he's a racist and he's ashamed of his own behavior. You know, but like he's, he's... introduced the narrator is introduced uh, like halfway through the book is John. And I have a note right next to that from the first time I read it, where you see his name is John, mm. and I say, is it John Steinbeck? Is it right. the narrator? And then 50 pages later, you find out that his mother is Olivia Steinbeck. <laughs> right, yeah, it's it's there somewhere in the first, I want to say, 100 pages or so. Like, if you're paying attention, you hear these several households sort of name-checked, and one yeah. of them is the Steinbecks. The Steinbecks. And then mm-hmm. it's mentioned that John is a is a child in this household at some yeah. point. I don't, I don't remember exactly. A jerk. You know how look at it, that look at that face face right, of a jerk the f- smug face for all the viewers who can't see at home um, Michael is showing me the back of the the book in which Steinbeck with a jerk face is look at that, you know, look at that little crooked smile I just see it there just being really smug about how he wrote himself like, into his hey, own best novel you know what I did right <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah anyway. Uh, that's you know that's that's one of the major themes of this book and you know that that to me is what makes it such like a quintessential american novel mm-hmm. like if you were going to teach the great american novel as a course this is one of like four or five books you would probably you know choose if you had to narrow it down that low you'd, you'd at least at least sort of in a traditional canonical sense like there are others you could make an argument for but you know traditionally it would be the adventures of huckleberry finn um the great gadsby uh there's one other one that i was thinking of Mm. um oh moby dick Dick. yes um you know maybe the scarlet letter oh sure and then east of eden like those those all get mentioned you know in the same breath uh and should or yeah yeah uh I, I, I will agree with you that I think Grapes of Wrath gets more attention. Mm-hmm. Probably because it's a little bit shorter than East of Eden. That And there's, you know, it almost functions as, like, a nonfiction document. Like, sure. Steinbeck did a lot of boots-on-the-ground research you, you for that book. You get a clear and... picture of the Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, and the Dust Bowl and all yeah. that. Like, that, that's that's what I really remember about the Great right. Wrath. I remember seeing the Dust Bowl and feeling it. And that's, that is, like, the value of the Grapes of Wrath, and that's yeah, why... it's contextual. You know, I would almost recommend reading the Grapes of Wrath more to, like, a history student, someone who's interested sure. in history. And on that level, I can't, you know, I could talk for hours about how much I appreciate it and appreciate the, the documentation and the research that went on, and then I can talk for an equal number of hours about how everything that is novelistic in that book is garbage. But sure. that's not what this show is about. No, we're talking um, about East of Eden. Right. <laughs> and so this this whole world-building idea is what makes this novel sort of so, mm-hmm. one of the things that makes it so American. And, you know, there, I... I well, uh, everybody's a world-builder in this book. Right. Every, even the minor characters are right. world builders. You know, even even one of the most striking and I think probably best passages of this novel is, you know, the this this character Samuel Hamilton who's this this Irish immigrant um who who comes to California and is not rich himself but but has at least as much influence in in the world of this book as any of the rich characters, mm-hmm. probably more so. But Samuel Hamilton is is 
riding with Adam Trask's Chinese servant, Lee, and Lee is doing this, you know, pigeon, pigeon. thing that, like, here in 21st century America is almost <laughs> okay, embarrassing. Okay, me make breakfast. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, like, almost embarrassing. Um, like, you know, like... Hyper-racist. Right, we cringe at it, and rightly so. But you, you figure out that Steinbeck also cringed at it, and, like, Samuel Hamilton almost calls him out on this. Like, you're... That's not how you talk. You were born... Here and you well, know, yeah, he sa- he says like we've got I I'm Irish and I talk like an American, right? What's wrong with you? You're Chinese. You're right. in America. You're born here. Why don't you talk like an American? Right. And Lee says, "Oh, well, I do. I can." <laughs> yep. But completely drops it. Yeah, drops both both the accent itself and like the the sort of pigeon grammar. Like he's talking in sentences at least as complex and intelligent as as you know Sam Samuel sentences. So, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's that idea. And, and Lee goes on to sort of say that, like, you know, what he claims is that if he didn't talk like the sort of cliche racist Chinese servant, no one would be able to understand mm-hmm. him. And that's sort of the world that they've built is this world where he feels trapped into mm-hmm. assuming this role. Um, He's and then, fit into the world of others, which is another theme. You yeah, know, everybody's world building, and but it, people have to fit into the worlds of others. Right, and it's this idea of who gets to build the world and who gets to uh-huh. be a, a minor character. And I think if you, you know, the the impression I get from this book is if you framed it, framed the question to Steinbeck himself that way, you know, he would he would just say, well, they're all building their own worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's even well, even the the idea of you know, who gets to control things, that's a matter of perception, too. The people with power perceive themselves as controlling things, but, and you know, and again, part of what makes um, uh, Kathy such a great villain is that, you know, she takes herself as a completely powerless person and completely changes, you know, the world that she's been built into multiple times. Oh, yeah. And, you know, part of, again, part of what makes her such a great villain is that you almost want to see her do that. Mm-hmm. Like it's this, it's you want to see what she's capable of. Yeah, and it's this, this power sort of idea that, you know, if you're sympathizing with her, you, you know, you would want to be able to change the world that you're in, and sure. so you sort of want her to be able to do it, too. Mm-hmm. And it's this really complex sort of thing there. What's what's really remarkable though is John Steinbeck as author slash narrator has created himself as a minor character. Right. The the world he's building is one in which he is small. He's yeah, he's <laughs> yeah, he's built himself into it, but he's quite possibly like one of the least powerful characters in this world. One of the most unimportant. Right. He's there for anecdotes. Right. And it's you know, it's it's another one of those paradoxes, which is a word you said earlier, mm-hmm. and that's the other sort of major thing that I picked up uh, you know, within the first two chapters of this novel. Yeah. You know. Um and then and then saw it played out almost hugely. And it's interesting to me, like, the paradoxes like they 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 almost come in clusters in the first probably several chapters and then they play out on a much larger scale over the the rest of the novel mm-hmm. so like you have paradoxes within sentences or paragraphs you know at first and then you have paradoxes over the course of like um adam and and his brother's relationship with each other and then that sets up paradoxes that get paid off even later in um adam's own children you know his own two sons and their relationship as brothers um and it's all it 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 reminded me of a, a professor that i that i had in in grad school who i think said he was quoting kundera um 
but but he always said that the novel is the best sort of stage on which we can embody uh ambiguity mm-hmm. like in a novel you 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 can take two things that seem like they contradict each other and just let them be yeah you know they they, they don't have to be resolved that's, they're just their intention and that's what that's creates a lot of the most powerful novels perfectly accurate in this novel mm-hmm. everything is is standing in opposition to kind of itself uh and you've got uh i I'm, I, I had to think back several times to a high school English class I took where uh, we were introduced to the concept of the duality of man mm. and that being kind of a central idea in a lot of American literature. Sure. Uh, and when we were then asked to analyze any work or, or talk about any work for the rest of that course, mm. somebody would invariably say it's about the duality of man. <laughs> and the teacher would say, stop saying that. Yes, <laughs> it is. Of course it is. But stop talking about right. it. And really, that's what this book is about. It's uh-huh. about the duality of man. You know, that kind of uh, similius epicator, if I can speak <laughs> Latin on this podcast. And, you know, that... that and that's it's very clear that uh, man is good and evil, right? Uh, combined, right, side by side, and it's allowed to be that way, right? There, there doesn't have to be a sort of resolution, which you know, if you had to resolve it one way or another, you'd either get to the sort of Pollyanna-ish, like um, you know, utopian fantasy that's contradicted by like most of human experience, or you'd get to this very dour, depressing sort mm-hmm. of end, which seems more real. Um, but is also in my, you know, I think also really contradicted by the balance of human experience. And those two extremes are addressed in this book. Right. You, you've got that, that, that utopian, uh, analysis that's completely dashed. That's in Aaron. Yeah. yeah, Uh, Aaron who wants to go into the church and he wants to be high church and be pure and everything. And, and he, he sees himself as perfect and he's crafted this perfect world. He believes that his mother is dead. His mm. mother, who is Kathy Ames. Right. Um, he believes that she is dead, and he's going to leave it like that. And she part of that belief is, is that he needs that to be part of the world that right. he's building. Exactly. If, if he's going to be a member of this world that is uh, that has perfection as a possibility, then his mother has to be dead. Right. Uh, because his father said so. Right. Uh, and his father is perfect. Right. And it, it's just, it's it's outlined perfectly for him, all of this. And you, you, you can draw that back you know, uh, another generation also in, uh, Adam, you know, wants to, uh, uh, sort of literally create Eden in, mm-hmm. um, the Salinas Valley where the, you know, this, this novel takes place. Uh, and you know, he has this idea of like create, creating very fertile farmland and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, planting the soil. And, you know, he tries to talk Samuel Hamilton and this idea of like, we, you know, we can't you see this, this, uh, just blossoming into a, a garden and um that idea that you know that that idea that desire of adam it gets addressed and sam hamilton kind of shoots it down <laughs> and and even when he does adam is still sort of determined but then it sort of just goes away like it, it's not really sort of brought up directly again you know where you'd almost expect it to be but again it's 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 brought up in that that desire of of his son to yeah. be be perfect and it's that same sort of Eden-esque fantasy almost. And you've got both of the brothers the at, at the last half of the book, Aaron and Cal, both right. 
thinking about taking up farming, taking over the ranch right. that they've left. Right. Now, notice they've left the ranch, this East of Eden sort of idea. They're right. no longer in Eden. Each of them wants to go back to Eden right. and or the ranch and make it what they want it to be. Right. Uh, Aaron wants it to be this perfect idyllic thing. When he describes it, he doesn't describe work. Uh, mm-hmm. If I could remember the exact page, I'd turn to it. But uh, he, he describes just pictures mm-hmm. of um, Abra, his, his, his interest, his, his love, love interest, interest, yeah, just standing under a tree uh, and, right. and looking out right. after him. Yeah. And he comes up and after a long day of work doing what? Who knows? Who cares? Right. He's come back. And they're together under this tree, and there's a, a gaggle of kids or something. You know, right. it's just it's this, just this idyllic picture. Right. Nothing actually is happening. Right. Yeah. And it's, it you know bringing bringing up Abra is an interesting point as well because you know again part of part of uh, this this sort of perfect world that that Aaron creates is a you know is is that she's there and and um you know he he flirts with the idea of going going celibate and and mm-hmm. you know casting her aside altogether but even if like he doesn't um it's it's all of the images are very almost like asexual mm-hmm. um not that that there's sex that there's they're ignoring but like there's no conception of sex there it's this very sort mm-hmm. of pure chaste pure in in sort of a very sort of shallow sense and you know once again spoilers as as late in the book uh abra finds herself even though the, like she and aaron have been engaged since the age of like five or whenever it is right. that they meet um which i still think is one of the most adorable things in all of literature but <laughs> it really is <laughs> so cute uh, especially because like it doesn't go away and you know it, they're still like 15 masterful and Steinbeck has this. done here uh-huh. is as kids uh, right. You you love how cute Aaron is, and right. Cal is kind of on the fringe fringes right. as this like wicked brother. Right. But then, as the story develops, they kind of trade places. Right. And Cal becomes the one that you really sympathize with, while right. Aaron is the one that's just inhuman. Right. And I'm trying to find the part, and I'm never going to do it. But that's uh, okay. you know, the you you pointed out that those initials C and A are very important, mm-hmm. and even though though like There's Caleb, so many C and A's, right? And even book. though even though Caleb and Aaron have different biblical connotations, they still have those initials C and A, mm-hmm. Cain and Abel. And so you know the, the the almost the way I was expecting it to play out, just based on the rest of Steinbeck was just you know almost a reenactment of of the whole brother murder thing which which sort of does happen kind of but indirectly but indirectly and it's it's you know again much much more sort of paradoxical and complicated and 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 one of the the most interesting conversations in the book is just when uh I believe it's Sam Hamilton, and he's talking to Lee when the the two brothers are still children. And you know, he 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 says to Lee, uh, "What you?" Or, or he says to the brothers, "Like, so did you, you know, bring a gift for your father?" And and you know, the brothers say, "Yeah." And did, well, did he like uh, Aaron's gift better than Cal's or something very pointed he, like that? Know. And Lee just looks at him and was like, "Knock it Stop off! It. Don't do this!" No, right? It, it's, and it's, it's it's about uh, Aaron is going to be raising rabbits yeah yeah and yeah, that's Cal right. is going to be right. getting a garden to tend. that's right yeah which yeah and kind sam of hamilton there. you know hears about the rabbits from aaron and says and i suppose you're going to get a garden and yeah i am and lee said stop it knock it off <laughs> and it's almost like they're just directly hitting that that world building idea mm-hmm. and it's like the subtext here is lee is, is just saying like stop building the world where this is who they are mm-hmm. like stop it 
And you know, you could argue. Don't about, force this. Don't don't make it concrete yeah. in this picture. Right. And you could argue about whether there's something sort of superstitious going on there yeah. or not, but um, it's still an interesting, you know, uh, sort of idea that, that leads into that whole Tim Shell thing. Yes. Um, which we can't end without we having talked about Tim that. Shell. Especially, you know, because it's it's central to, I think, where this book fits in American literature. But Tim Shell is this, this idea where... They could they go to the Cain and Abel story in Genesis, and you know they sort of reiterate that. And I was thinking earlier that this may be part of why you thought felt like this book was like reading the Bible because there oh. are like four pages that are just verbatim quote from the King yep. James Bible. <laughs> um, but they they read the story, you know, Cain Cain and Abel, and and they get to God likes. Uh, uh, we can, can we mention how badly they exegete the story, first of all? Yeah, oh, it's terrible. Because, so they get to the part where, like, you know, God uh, approves Abel's offering and, and hates Cain's offering. Hebrews is mentioned. Right, They, they right, mention right, right. Hebrews and say, well, Abel had faith, and then Lee says, well, Genesis doesn't say that, so leave that out. <laughs> but, right. And moving on. Right. But, but they still just, you know, it's, it's right there on the page in the quote from King James, you know, uh, Abel brought the first fruits of his offerings, mm-hmm. like the best, the, you know, straight off the top, the best stuff. And Cain just brought an offering. Just whatever. What, yeah. Just, yeah. You know, and that's, that's like right there in the text, right. even in the English text right. without having to go into the, so that's, that's just my, my aside. I don't know if you have anything to add. I mean, you've hit the points and, and it's, say, it's, you know, you could get into it theologically, but that's not Steinbeck's point. Right. And, so it's it, okay, and like yeah. I don't hate this book because of that, right? But I do hate that, right? He's theologically wrong, but humanistically, correct. yeah. Like he's 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 using it for a different purpose, which is right. this idea of Tim Shull. and and you know, so they get past that part of like why you know, oh, why did God uh, love Abel's offering and hate Cain's? Mm-hmm. We are very mystified by this, even though it's right on the page in front of us. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Um, they get to the part of Cain's punishment and he's, you know, uh, God, God says, well, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna be an outcast. You're gonna wander the earth. Um, and Cain says, well, uh, you know, any man who meets me is going to kill me. Right. Um, and God puts the the mark on Cain and which there is a forehead mark on two people in the book on Charles and on Kathy. Right. Very explicitly. Right. That they've got this forehead mark, which is the most traditional aspect of what the mark of Cain is. Right. Some mark on the forehead. Right. But that's, you know, we don't need to get into the theological discussion about it. But (laughs) tiptoeing around the edge of that. Going around that. Anyway. What we'll have to do here. Anyway, uh, if we don't dive straight into it and and get our clothes sopping wet. Right. um, To the titillation of all the the viewers listening at home. Anyway. They would love it, I'm sure. They would. They would. um, See either of us with a wet t-shirt. Ooh. Did you just have a fundraiser idea? Is that what I did. I refuse to participate. Anybody who donates (laughs) may get a picture of both Ethan and myself. With wet with t-shirts? With t-shirts. I think you've just guaranteed that we will never get any <laughs> donations of any kind, which may be for the best. Anyway, so, Tim Schull. We get we get to this point where God says, uh, do you, I don't know if you remember the exact quote, but it's... Uh, some... uh, Sin will lie at your doorstep, and you shall rule over him, if we put it literalistically. Right. And so, so yeah, uh, and, and they, they have this whole thing about sin... 
what is you shall rule over it mm-hmm. you know what is that and the word in hebrew is tim shell tim shell bowl if right. you want to put it perfectly which you did i did so i don't so, have to do it so i'm, I'm grateful yeah. for that tim shell bowl um I was going to say it's it's ironic that I'm the one summarizing this, considering we have someone here who can read biblical Hebrew. But I'm not going to toot my own horn. That's why I tooted it for you. Thank you. In the part... I love it when you toot my horn. <laughs> I was going to say in the part that we had to edit out for content purposes. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'll I'll toot your horn once we're once we're done here. Ooh, <laughs> for our fifty dollar donors. <laughs> You get the audio of Ethan tooting my horn. <laughs> For only our $20 donors, you just get the audio of Ethan tooting. Um, <laughs> so, so That's a guarantee. <laughs> Call 1-800-VAN-HELSING. Jude Law and or someone on the other end of 1-800-VAN-HELSING is going to be very confused by the <laughs> phone calls from all four of our listeners. Anyway, forgot what the crap I was saying. So, Tim Shell. Tim uh, Shell. In, in, which within... is actually transliterated incorrectly, oh, which I it? find interesting. I don't know if he's making a point by that, uh, but Tim Tim Shell is how it's transliterated. It should be Tim Shull. Okay. I don't know if he's making a point by that. What point would he be making? That it's was... world building within his story. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. That's that's the best I can come up with. Sure. Anyway, go on. Because um, it's Mashal is the, the root word. Mashal, Mashalta, Mashal, Mashalta, Mashalta, Mashalta. Uh, Michelle Tem, Michelle Ten, Michelle Ten, Mashalu, Michelle Ten, no, uh, Yishmal, Tishmal, Tishmal, Tishmalu, Tishmal. Uh, there is going to be a test on this for yeah, all of yeah. our listeners. Okay. And if you don't get at least a 70 Mashal, on that test. Mashallah, Mashalta, Mashalt, Mashal Tem. If you don't get at least a 70 yeah. on the test, you will fail this podcast. Um, but you're if, watching, but if you don't get at least a 70, don't worry. We have also failed this podcast. So, yeah, and we're still on it. We are somehow. I don't know. I, I really don't. Thank anyway, you for your support. We appreciate all three of you. Um, we lost, we lost one. We lost one while you were declining that, that Hebrew Dang word, it. like they got really bored. See, and, I was on the left. fence about whether to decline it or not. No, you weren't. No, I wasn't. You didn't even think about whether I you should decline just, it. You just went ahead I just and started. Went and did it. Yeah. Um, I wasn't thinking. That's the problem. You need to think more. <laughs> yeah. That's what you said the last time I tooted your horn too. I know. Um, anyway. It's a pattern with me. <laughs> <laughs> what the crap was I even saying? All right. Tim Schull. Tim Schull. So this idea that and and so within the context of the book, at least they claim it's it's a verb that that sort of um, implies thou mayest uh, overcome sin. Yes, and it's this that's like you may or you may not. It's it's very uh, sort of up to you. And that's interesting to me um, because I think one of the major themes of just American literature overall, um, and it, it might go back to that sort of duality theme, but. Um, it's, it's this idea of determinism versus free will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the American, sort of the American experiment, uh, it's, it inherently is very pro, like, free will. Like the, you Absolutely. Know, the churches that flourished in, in America were very, um, you know, make your decision kind of churches. Like they, they emphasized man's free will to, to, uh, accept or reject mm-hmm. salvation. Um, Calvinism did not hit off very well right and you know lutheranism kind of kind of did and kind of didn't well that's 
the nature of Lutheranism. <laughs> right. You know, somewhere in between there. Right. Always so, always in the middle. The the golden middle way. It's it's Exactly. Lutheranism is the Buddhism of Christianity. That might either be the best thing or the worst thing that has been said on this podcast. Thank and you. Thank you're you. welcome. Thank you're you. welcome. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> either way. Anyway, okay, so, um, what the heck were we even saying? Tim Schill. Tim Schill. So, okay, oh, right, so determined. So, um, again, the American experiment is very much about free will and self-determination, this idea, you know, this this great American founding myth that, like, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like, there's no limit to where you can go, um, you know, that, that whole idea. Um, but in American literature, there's this weird vein of determinism. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like uh, Mark Twain, especially in his late works, you know, and Mark Twain is considered in some ways like the American author, like the, the great American author. Um, in his later works, he's very deterministic. Like he had an entire essay basically arguing that man is a clockwork mechanism, that everything in a man and in his, or, you know, in a human in his life is predetermined um and there's no you know there's free will is completely an illusion you know and and huckleberry finn of course is considered the great work by him and and huck has that great moment in huckleberry finn where he's like well if if you know turning jim in means i go to hell then i guess i'm going to hell and that moment is considered like a triumph of free will Mm -hmm. but a lot of recent critics even in huck finn have have sort of read that idea that deterministic idea of character in and found that that at least to them, and I'm I'm sort of not sure what I think about this, but but at least to a lot of recent critics, you know, there's very actually very little free will in Huck Finn. It's very deterministic. Mm-hmm. I, I feel and, like American authors are often jumping off of determinism. Right. That's where they start, and they're trying to free themselves from it. But it's a great big black hole that they keep getting sucked back into. Yeah, that could be, and and you know. Moby Dick is is almost even more yeah. that way too. Like in Moby Dick, character is destiny. Mm-hmm. There's no character arcs in Moby Dick. Everyone Zero. at the end of the book is the same character they were at the start. You know, and that includes Captain Ahab, like going down with. I guess spoilers for Moby Dick, but Captain Ahab going down with the whale. If you need a spoiler warning for Moby Dick, stop listening to this podcast. That's and really true. Rethink your life. Might be harsher than. Uh, Michael would have put it four scotches ago. Damn it! Oh. Okay. Okay. Then, all right. Go for you, it. You get your punishment. All right. Immediately. Wait. Michael is getting up. I'm getting um, up. and I'm because not sure I'm comfortable. We are in a room full of books, so any literary punishment. So many books. Wait. So I would like the 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 everyone uh, watching at home to note that what Michael did was get up, go across the room, pick up. My complete works of William Shakespeare and take the other complete works of William Shakespeare that was under it out from beneath it. So that was a completely useless action on his part. I was fated to do it. But he was he was predetermined to do it. Anyway, yeah, Moby Dick, very deterministic, you know, character is destiny. Okay. Keep talking while I figure um, this out. I am, I am. Mike, Michael is, is currently paging through a, you know, multi-thousand page complete works of Shakespeare. And I wish him good luck um, because he will need it. Anyway, yeah, so, you know, and, and even in The Great Gatsby, once again, you have this, this idea these characters fight against determinism, but ultimately, like Michael said, they get sucked into it like a great black hole, you know, and, and in The Scarlet Letter, there's there's a very strong vein of, of uh, 
uh, character as destiny. Um, you know, it's this, it's this theme that, that repeats and, uh, up until East of Eden, it's almost very strongly in favor of determinism. And I know, you know, a lot of the critics of Twain actually said, uh, he was, he was heavily influenced by like a frontier tent revival form of Calvinism, this very, you know, religion or, you know, teaching in Christianity that essentially says that God predetermines who he's going to save and who he's going to damn. And there's no free will. It's, it's just a, you know, a, um, an illusion. So this is, uh, this is a major theme in American fiction. So the idea of Tim Scholl is very interesting because it implies that, you know, you have the deterministic route and you have the, the free will route and like, you're given a choice. You can either sort of fall into determinism or, or, you know, uh, exercise your, your free will. I don't know what I think about that, but it's a really fascinating development. You know, East of Eden was published about 1950, if I remember right. Um, and it's a really interesting development in the history of American literature. And I've officially said everything I had to say about that, so I hope you have found I have found your punishment. Okay. Uh, so, your punishment. I have I have the complete works of Shakespeare here. I have turned in your complete who's, who's works of complete Shakespeare. Works? Shakespeare? Okay. Shakespeare here? Shakespeare here. Here, this Shakespeare. Um... Uh, act Generation. one, scene five of what of what play? Macbeth. Okay. Act one, scene five. We're we're not in a theater right now, so it's no, acceptable to say. Uh, Macbeth you are to line. read from this line to the end. This is a monologue by Lady Macbeth. You are to read that monologue in falsetto. Oh, but I'm allowed to breathe. You are allowed to breathe. Oh, okay. But you must read it in falsetto. Well, that's much less cruel than I was to you last month. Yeah, I know. But it's still going to be funny, and everybody is going to make fun of you. Please make fun of Ethan on the internet. Find him at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. That's on Twitter, since Michael wasn't clear. And I should have left it unclear, because... Whatever. Make fun of him. Anyway, Make fun of him. It's okay. I don't, I'm never on Twitter, so I won't even know. <laughs> so I'm reading from Exit Attendant, yes? Yep. Okay. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here! And fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctions visitings of nature shake my foul purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breasts, and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief, come thick night and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, hold, hold. Thank you. I want everybody watching at home who can't see to know that Ethan was cupping his breasts. Only during the parts that literally in the text called for breast cupping. Yeah, I know. And at no other parts, so it was not even inappropriate. But still, he did it. Like, if the FCC ever has to regulate this show, I want them to know that none of that was inappropriate. It's all PG. It's all PG. I didn't even lift up my shirt. 
No, it's true. As it the FCC covered. will know once they watch this show. Right. Watching, you'll know. It was no breasts were visible. Not even Ethan's. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, I feel like we've hit the nader. Like, um, all of the naders that of are possible to hit, we've hit them. Like, look, this is my list of motifs and themes at the back of the book here. Yes, for all of those uh, watching at home, Michael has an entire page of Michael handwriting, which is yep. indecipherable to everyone else, but it is an entire page. See, that's why I don't have to worry about spies. That's true. It's true. I don't even know why you bothered to come up with a, uh, a shorthand, because no one can read your regular writing anyway. I know. So, And even if you... You know, I, I might take back my shame of you. Uh, I'm ashamed of you for that forcing me into that Lady Macbeth travesty, but... I'm not ashamed you of be you ashamed because of I am ashamed of myself also, um, except for the breast cupping, which was uh, quite divine. The spirit of the of the uh, moment. Well done. It made me feel. <laughs> Don't blame me for your feelings. Anyway. I forgot what I was saying, so I don't even know. The nadir. nadir. Yeah, we're, I don't know. Nadir. Do you have anything else to say? I, you know, I really don't. Okay. Um, I, let, I, I'm just going to read my list of motifs, and the, the, the watcher at home can, uh, can take them or leave them. For East of Eden, uh, I, I left off at uh, the, 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 the paradox of faith and love. Right. Um, so another theme is the corruption of all. Uh, and inherited sin, right. which comes out a lot. Uh, memory is a theme. We didn't really talk about a whole lot, but memory comes up a good deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fear and control being linked in a lot of ways. Um, the story is a theme. Um, uh, the simul justus epicator, I wrote that down in Latin. I wrote it down twice, in fact. We but, might have to make a rule banning Latin on this show. That's not fair. It's not, but it might be necessary. Yeah, it might not be the rule we want, but it might be the rule that we deserve. And by we, I mean you. That's fine. Um, choice. Right. Is a theme. Well, and that hooks in with that whole Tim Schill thing. And... Yep. Fitting right in there. Uh, uh, belief and proof. Control of memories, which is linked back to memory. External. Like people are using their memories to build the world that they want. Yeah, right. Uh, which, if you look at chapter two, if we want to, if we want to turn to that briefly, I actually had that like had my finger in that oh, for you, a while. Did you chapter two, the beginning of chapter two, is, yeah. is probably the beginning of any chapter in all existence. Uh, begins. I must depend on hearsay. Right. What? <laughs> Done. <laughs> just like, leave it there. Again, if we wanted to have our unreliable narrator conversation from last month again, right? Just we okay. Pause could. this podcast. Go back and listen to episode one, and then come back and pick up at this point again. All right. Ready? Okay. Good. Wasn't it great? Yeah. We, right. we paused shorter that time because yeah, because you, you right. obviously already listened to it anyway, right clearly uh, on old photographs on stories told and on memories which are hazy and right. mixed with anyway okay Mem memories yep right um I, I actually while we're in chapter two briefly i just sure. want to like talk about the second paragraph of that chapter oh the second paragraph. whoa young samuel hamilton came from the north of ireland and so did his wife mm -hmm. so samuel hamilton um one of the most american names like it's you know oh, yeah. it's like you're combining multiple like founding fathers and founder figures of this country to make this name, but it is also an extremely Irish name. Mm -hmm. So there's a paradox for you. Uh, he was the son Love of small it. farmers, neither rich nor poor, who had lived on one landhold. Blah blah blah. 
The Hamiltons managed to be remarkably well-educated and well-read, and as is so often true in that green country, they were connected and related to very great people and very small people. So again, mm-hmm. sort of a paradox there. Somewhere in between. Right, and that, that middle route. Let me, let me interrupt for a second by reading the first two sentences of the book entirely. Mm-hmm. The Salinas Valley is in Northern California. It is a long, narrow swale between two ranges of mountains, and the Salinas River winds and twists up the center until it falls at last into Monterey Bay. Right. In between. Go on. Go on. Middle, middle route. So, so one cousin might be a baronet and another cousin a beggar. Again, between and, you know, that, that idea yep. of... Uh, the extremes. Uh, the extremes, but also that, that sort of paradox, the, mm-hmm. the tension there. And, of course, they were descended from the ancient kings of Ireland, comma, as every Irishman is. So yeah. there's like a scent, like a self-contained paradox in that sentence, but it's also something very, very true about Ireland. Um, you know, Ireland in the in the old days had they had a high king, but then they had kings. Essentially, if I'm understanding things right, for like every county and every you know mm-hmm. seat of of government. So there were so many kings that you know even to this day. And I've read this in other like like uh, memoirs by by Irishmen and stuff. You know, a lot of people's mothers will say things like, uh, oh, we're descended from the kings of Ireland for what that's worth. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's so many kings in Ireland, it almost, I mean, it almost loses Braveheart, value. Yeah. Where the Which, Irishman says it's my island. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, you know, and, and so there's, there's almost an external uh, paradox about that paragraph as well. Because it's all about Ireland, it's about the the ancestry of Samuel Hamilton. But if you reread it and you just think about America and the founding of America and the history mm-hmm. of America, it's all about America. Also, the the you know, yeah. it's all about the United States and that that American experiment. And I feel like that's as good a a concluding note as we're going to get, probably. So, uh, you know, we we welcome your. Input, as always, uh, I believe there's a contact section on the website. There is. Um, so, you know, if you have any angry missives to fire off to us about, you know, Michael's uh, errors in, in, in his Hebrew or um, any I of the know other I did it poorly. very important. I need to brush up on that. Um, very important matters that we've covered in this uh, in this <clears throat> hour and a half or so. You know, uh, send us send us a a thing. Um, I'd I'd actually love to. I meant to talk to you about this before, but I'd love to like take a a few minutes if we do get some missives and like read them on the yes. podcast and talk about how wrong they are. Yes. Um. So if you want to be publicly called out by us, who have all the podcast power for being wrong, please, please send us missives. We have the power of narrative, and you do not. You are part of our creation. Right, and so since that is clearly very attractive, um, not even like giving them the option of of it not being attractive, like no, no, like s- yes, send you us. Will be vamped by us. Yeah. Also, vamp means something else, but we'll talk about that later. No, no we'll talk about that later when I honk your horn. No. Um, anyway, or toot your horn, whatever it is. Anyway, I, don't I forget what you're into. We'll so we always do. So I have one more surprise. Uh, Goody. I, I uh, you know, as as is tradition on this show, the the next rule, um, being the person who had to be subjected to the vampirism of vampirism of Michael making me like a Steinbeck novel, um, I get to subject Michael next month to my choice of of novel. So I can't wait to see what it is. Now, uh, 
the book that Michael and I read last month, we had both uh, read it before, um, mm-hmm. as as was mentioned, because I forced him before we even had a podcast as leverage to force each other to read things. So Ethan is the eternal vampire. As usual. So, and then this month, obviously, Michael had read East of Eden before. Um, for next month, we're reading a book that, as far as I know, neither of us have read before. Ooh. Um, which I kind of wanted to do because it's fun to, like, reread stuff or, you know, and that. But it's also fun to dive into something completely new and have completely new wrong impressions of it to, you know, change when we read it the second time. So the novel for next month is called Then We Came to the End. I'm showing Michael Ooh. my copy. He's going to have to get his own. I'll get my own. Um, it it uh, is a... Was a finalist for the National Book Award back in 2012 or 2013, hmm. and it won the Hemingway Foundation slash Pen Award. Um, and I, I encountered it first back around the end of 2012 or the beginning of 2013 when it got onto several like best of the year type lists. And uh, it just just reading about it intrigued me at the time, so I. I you know, pledged to uh, read it. I acquired a copy, and it has been sitting on my shelf for a solid, like, two to three years at least. Um, my wife actually read it, because she thought it looked interesting, and unlike me, she doesn't have, like, a, a three-year delay between deciding to read something and actually reading it. But uh, you you haven't read this, have you? Not at all. No, okay. I don't even know who that is. Okay. Who is Joshua Ferris? I don't know. I think Then We Came to the End is his first novel, if okay. I remember right. Okay. I mean, hey, even right uh, on the... Breakout hit. Right on the cover, there's a blurb from the New York Times book review saying one of the ten best books of the year. So, um, that's what this book is. Uh, I know a little bit about it. I I don't think you know anything about it. Nothing. But, again, neither of us have actually read it. So, it may be that we get to next month and one or both of us hated it. And, um, you know, we spend 90 minutes just just doing a hit piece on it. So That'd be um, fun. Joshua Ferris, if you're listening, don't get too excited yet. Also, if you're listening, I'm so excited because you're probably, like, the most famous person to listen to us. I I don't think Joshua Ferris is listening to this podcast. Yeah, but maybe he is retroactively. Okay, I guess. In in the future. Like, 24 years in the future. Right. When you've uncovered our podcast, somehow... Somehow in 2031. Yeah. You're listening to this podcast. I don't... I don't think that's 24 years in the future. 24 years in the future, isn't it? What it... Okay. Twenty-four. We are both really bad at math. Why are we so bad at math right now? We we studied English in college. Oh, that's right. That's why. Um. Anyway, I don't remember. I don't. I don't actually care about this. I think it's like fourteen. We're gonna read this book. Twenty-four years to twenty twenty-one, and then twenty thirty-one would be twenty forty-one. That that would be whatever. Anyway, going on time in the future. We've read this book, and we don't know what we will think of it yet. So, Joshua Ferris. Forgive us. Forgive us now and maybe like us later, depending on what we do next month. So, if that grammar wasn't confusing enough... I don't even know. I don't know what we just said. But next month, we were reading the book, Then We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris. So, since you want to read along with us, again, not giving them a choice. Nope, no choice. Um, You have to. Since you want to read along with us, get a copy of it. Shouldn't be too hard. Uh, and read along, and and we'll see what happens. And then we came to the end by Joshua Ferris. End. You know, I've I've never even heard of this book. Interesting. So probably several of our viewers at home who are watching us right now, yes, also have not heard of this book. Probably true. 
but you know i think that's the niche i kind of wanted to hit with this podcast is books that like are perfectly readable but not necessarily everyone has read right like i don't really want to do catcher in the rye ever also because i hate catcher in the rye yeah you know that's um, another grapes of the wrath it is, it is another grapes of the wrath <laughs> What inspired that reinterpretation of uh, Steinbeck's novel, Michael? Uh, the freaking scotch! Oh! That we drank. We need a, we need a, a, like, you know, bell alarm or something to go off when You're asking way too much of word. me as editor of this podcast. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> um, I'm going to email this to you so that you can edit that in. Oh, okay, okay. So if there so, are not sirens, it's Ethan's fault. <laughs> Good. There won't be sirens if it requires effort on my part. Okay, so I thought of this. Um, I wish I had thought of a Shakespeare one because we're in a room full of books and like that would be a good one. But I, I thought of this idea. So please pick a number between 1 and 26. Yikes. Uh, it's not that hard. Do you want me to say it out loud? Yes. Okay, 19. Okay, what is the 19th letter of the alphabet? Uh, S. Okay. I require you to uh, create out loud for us right now live Yikes! a <laughs> grammatically correct sentence. I don't care how long it is, um, but it has to be grammatically correct, and each letter of the sentence must start with S. Some simple salutatarians seem severe. Yay! <laughs> and, and that's that was the audience going wild. Oh, okay. But I'm the only audience. Thank you, audience. So I went wild and I... I uh, took off his shirt. I did. I took off... Well, I got my shirt wet. Then I took it off. Yep. Then I cupped my, my just, breasts again, just like when I was Lady Macbeth. Just for you, the viewers at home. Yes. Um, and now that we've vampiristically put that horrifying image into your brain balls... So that you become... Hours. To be clear, brain balls are like eyeballs, but for your brain and without actually physical representation. It's, it's a metaphor. Not anything else. It's a Don't. metaphor. Come on, get yeah, it. It's a just, metaphor. Just calm down, you guys. Figure it out! Okay. Um, now that we've lost all two of the listeners we had left... Yeah, I know. All right. So next month... How do we keep declining? You'd I think, don't know. You'd think, you'd think we'd, we'd hit, hit rock bottom? but th Well, they keep coming we back. We keep going down. Like... You know, like a beaten dog. Yeah. You keep coming back. It's really sad. It is really sad. Why are you still listening? You dumb. You're so dumb. Dumbs. You're so dumb. Why um, do you put up with this abuse? I, I just told you you're dumb. Why are you still listening? Don't worry, guys. After the podcast, I'm going to take Michael out behind the woodshed and put him out of his misery. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and it's been too long. <laughs> this got really dark all of a sudden. Yikes. Um... So, next Here, let's month... turn on the light. Oh, yeah, thank you. There you go. Yeah, now I feel much better. Now it's so much um, illuminated. We just tim-shelled our, our way to, to the light again. Thou mayest. We thou... We mayested into the mayest light and it. stuff. I'm not even going to touch um, it. Go on. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'll touch it. So. Yikes. One last time, we'll be reading next month, Then We Came to the End, by Joshua Ferris. Feel free to read along. If you'd like to join the discussion, visit us at tapestryradio.org. Uh, leave your feedback in the contact section. It helps yes, if you... Up at the top. 
Yeah. Contact. It says contact at the top of the website. Contact. Should be should be pretty easy. Be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line, or you don't have to. We'll probably read we'll it anyway, it but it, it might help. But Scotch Talk would help. Anyway, um, if you do like what we do here, uh, please share. You know, like like it on the face tweet. Um, share it on the tweet face. Uh, tell the your media friends about social. it. Yeah, um, all of that stuff, like, you know, it's not like we have a budget here or skills in advertising, so word of mouth is literally the We're only English thing we majors, have. guys, come on, we need right. all the help we can get. Um, reviewing us on iTunes helps. Uh, Very much it helps. Uh, we do have that Twitter handle, right? Yes, Room we do. with Scotch. Yes, so, on Twitter we are at Room with Scotch, so feel free to talk There's back to us there. Mark in the script. Um, thank you. <laughs> so we're on Facebook. Also, there's a Michael and Ethan room with scotch page. There is a tapestry radio network page where you can find, uh, our other tapestry podcasts, uh, like including intermission, our fiction podcast intermission, like Michael said, which has its second episode out already. And there will be a third episode by the time this airs. I think, I think. by the time this airs, if... the third episode will be out. Okay. So, I mean, what I mean, listeners, since this is is live, the third episode is out. Clearly, uh, we're doing this live. You're right listening now. to us right now. Uh, why are you Why are you doing that? Why are you rolling your eyes like that? Stop Shut it! Shut up! Shush. Anyway, go to sleep. The great it's thing late. is, the great thing is, we got at least three people on that on that. Why are you rolling your eyes like? I know. Um, it's awesome. Good. So yeah, Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, TapestryRadio.org is the name of the website, so yep. you can go straight there, download or stream. Also, and... Pokemon Rollout, the yeah, sorry, real play to... RPG Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. Uh, my brother Nick is uh, game master for that uh, podcast. He's got the whole story figured out. I have no idea what's happening, but I play an old man, and it's fun, and we catch Pokemon. So if you play Pokemon Go, or if you're interested in playing Pokemon Go, or if you're interested in Pokemon... Or if you're interested in RPGs, or if you just like a funny story, uh, go ahead and listen to that. That's a lot of fun. All I heard just now was Pokemon, 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 RPG, 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 funny. But it was enough to convince me to listen to it. So if if it works for me, it should work for you, you uh, cynical jerks. Anyway, Come on! Get over yourself. <laughs> um, I write a webcomic, which uh, a friend of mine who's brilliant at illustration... Um, she draws it. It's uh, it's really good. Thank you. It's Pin Porter Girl Detective. I'm and just it's... saying that for the podcast. I I, I know. I don't but you actually didn't have to say it out no, loud but on I had the to podcast. Be, I had to say you it. have to edit this out now, or I will hit you. Okay. Um, I meant it. I meant it. It's awesome. I love it. Thank you for that completely natural and uncoached. It's natural. Thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I do uh, love it. Pin Porter Girl Detective. But I, don't, but Pin, I love it. Pin Porter Detective. Pin Porter Detective dot com. Um, for all you viewing at home, I did just cover Michael's mouth, uh, and he liked it, so. Um, I did. So, Michael, what did you think of the scotch? It was really good. I you know, so like, too. space sides are kind of the, you know, they're the Buddhism of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> they're the middle way? The middle way. You know, okay, so, so you've got Highland scotch, right? Right. Highland scotch is if, if your uncle is coming to town and you need to buy a scotch for him, you buy a Highland. Sure. Okay. But a, uh, an Islay scotch is what you drink when you're alone. 
right and, and it's hate the, best the world scotch, and you and hate you, everybody and you want to be at a bonfire but you want the bonfire to be inside of you exactly okay, okay. so space side is in between okay sure so and this is a really good space side you know it's, yeah it's 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 uh it's solid it's it it bears you up on its wings um i agree and it's 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 i i it was sort of lighter as scotches go i mean it was. i'm, I'm it was used really to like light. the the sort of peat smoke of like a, a lafroy is my sort of touchstone so, sure. and this is comparatively very light but very floral very fruity right it's, um, it's heavier than a highland but lighter than an eye yeah so right perfectly in between and it's you know i usually only like those sort of darker smokier things but i really liked this yeah it was it was sweet had a lot of honey to it. Yeah. Um, you know, and but it wasn't overpowering. Right. It was. It was subtle. Yeah. And just drink it. <laughs> yes, I agree. I'm that's what give I it, say. I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five. You know, I'm going to give it a three because it's not really solid for me, and it's not terrible. So I feel I'm like you just contradicted right everything that you just said. No, about it's that. perfectly in the middle. Oh, I see. So you're not giving it a three, like because you think it's. A three, you giving it a three just for it to be mathematically in the middle. Yes? I'm pretty sure that's what you just told me. I will neither confirm nor deny. So you're right in the middle. I hate you, and yet I love you, so I'm gonna that's kind of the theme go of this right down episode, the middle so. and, like, chop you in half with a machete. Uh, so if you can't hear me next month, that's because Ethan has murdered me. So, but I'm only murdering half of you. The other half can live. I don't think that's actually how it works, but okay. Okay. So, Mount Horeb Police Depart- Department. Michael Dis- can't even Dispart- pronounce this, so you know how reliable. How that badly is. he has injured me. Anyway, what do you think of the book? Would you recommend it? Uh, I would highly recommend this book. Uh, if you are going to read any John Steinbeck, and everybody in America has had to read John Steinbeck, if it, if nothing else than Of Mice and Men. Right, or being, Grapes of Wrath. Or Grapes of Wrath, probably. either one, in probably. In high school or college, probably. Right, probably at least one of those. Read East of Eden. If you hated being forced to read one of those books, read East of Eden. Yeah. I agree. If you and if, were not forced to read them, read East of Eden. If you were forced to read them and you liked them, read East of Eden! Yeah, like, what are you even doing? You probably should have read East of Eden already if that's the right. case. Okay, I completely agree. I, you know, if if you somehow have escaped reading any other John Steinbeck, read East of Eden. If uh, you have read Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men and hated it, you are actually obligated to read East of Eden. It's like kind of it's, almost contractually. Yeah, like you literally forced upon you can't not without violating the terms of your agreement. Like okay, so I'm collecting the Steinbeck Centennial editions of his works. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And like if 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 even if you don't have the Steinbeck Centennial editions, find something that matches in East of Eden. You'll find it. it no problem that matches your copy of Grapes of Wrath or of Mice and Men. And set it side by side, you'll feel so content. That's true. Book aesthetics are a thing. And if you disagree, you probably stopped listening to this podcast a long time ago. Yeah. Probably like 10 minutes into episode one, you probably stopped listening. probably. But, um, yeah, no, highly recommended. So, um, Ethan, I'm going to compare 
and rate the scotch choice side yes. by side with this book, I think the scotch you chose is excellent. Good. Uh, I, I think it's a, a perfect recognition of the in-between nature that Steinbeck wishes to consign to the whole of humanity. That we are stuck in between good and evil, and we don't know which side we're on until we die, and even then, other people get to decide. It's interesting you say that, because I'm going to say, like, I really liked the scotch, um, but as a pairing, I wish it had been a little bit smokier to achieve that balance. Like, it has okay. sort of the light, you it know, is a little lighter fruity, fruity floral thing, but I wish it had had that plus sort of a, a again, a balance, a, a nice, you know, e- at least earthiness, if not smokiness, to... Sure. To achieve that balance. It's so, a little too heavenly, like yeah, Aaron Trask. Yeah, like it's it's all on one side of the spectrum, and I wish it had been on both. But again, just as a scotch, really liked it. Really good. So. All right. Um, anything else? I don't think so. Well, until next month, we are Michael and Ethan, and we are in a room that has scotch in it.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours. (laughs) ¶¶ 